Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, of thy It is my great pleasure to be here at Foothills Assembly to bring the Word of God to you. And um, I was excited that God spoke to me and has something very particular for you that I've never preached anywhere. Um, And as God began to speak to me about it, I saw a great necessity for me to listen to it. Amen? It's the great privilege of being a man of God when God speaks to you. You get to hear it in your study and when you're spending time with Him and then when you deliver it, you get to hear it again. Men of God often need to hear the Word twice. And um, that really goes along well with my sermon today called Killing the King. In your liturgy, uh, it's written out Killing the King with a capital K, but it really should be Killing the King with a small k because there is only one king amen Amen. one lord one faith one baptism one king and god over all the earth my text for you is from the book of first john starting in verse five of chapter one i'll read it for you and i know we've prayed but i i'm going to pray again This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, though, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I need Your strength. I need You to speak to Your people today, Lord, that they would hear Your voice and not my own that I would not get caught up in the process and hinder it, Lord, but that they would hear your voice, that they would recognize it, and that they would heed it today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, once upon a time, long, long ago, in a land far, far away, there lived a king named Saul. He was from a good family. Everybody say he was from a good family. He was head and shoulders taller than all the men of Israel, and he was strong, and he was good looking. Everybody say he was good looking. The big family of a man who was named Israel had grown into a mighty nation, maybe even numbering in the millions in Egypt, and there they had been slaves, but God had brought them out with a mighty hand. He had brought them through the wilderness, and he had brought them into a land that was beautiful that was flowing with milk and honey and now that they had land of their own and houses of their own and vineyards that they didn't plant that were now their own they looked around at the other nations round about them and they began to compare themselves with them they said we have all this but you know what we don't have we don't have a king they had everything the other nations had but they didn't have someone they could heap upon the wealth of their nation that could walk around in pageantry before them who would stand up strong and tall and and rule with a mighty hand all they had was little old sweet Samuel the Nazarite raised by Eli the priest in the temple who his sweet mother had brought to God led and protected and brought into this land They called the promised land by God himself. They now wanted to be like the other nations instead of like the nation God was making them to be. God had led them through the prophet Samuel. And he had told them that this was not going to be a good idea. That they were to have a king. And he felt himself actually rejected because he had a plan of succession of his own sons. And God explained to him, they have not rejected you They've rejected me. The desire echoed something that happened way back at the dawn of time when God made the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God walked and talked with them and led them beside the green pastures and still waters of Eden. God had set just one small prohibition before them. Anybody remember what it was? I believe I've talked about this a little bit here at this church before. That's right, it was not to eat of just one of the many trees of the garden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam and Eve ate of this tree, sin entered into the whole world and death came into the world as a result. Man chose to know good. Everybody say, man chose to know good. good. And he chose to know evil. Instead of knowing God. This is at the heart of our brokenness, people of God. It may be several years since I was here preaching this part of the message. But there is the good way. There is the evil way. But then there's the God way. We often find it much easier to understand why we should not do evil or sinful things like murder, adultery, lying, and so forth. But where we have the most trouble in following after God is we follow after good things. Things that in the end and themselves seem to be good ideas. Good ideas, though, are not God ideas. We often follow after good when the sum total of Christianity is to follow after God. 
Good ideas are not always God ideas. For example, in the story of Cain and Abel, it wasn't that Cain refused to give sacrifice to God. Remember this? He wanted to offer sacrifice to God, but what he wanted to do is he wanted to offer sacrifice from his own work. He was a tiller of the ground. And what did he do? All he wanted to do was offer God the crops that he had raised. What's so bad about that? He wanted to offer that. And when God refused him, when he said all the crops that you've raised, as much as they're good, and all the sweat that you put into them, I don't want that, he was insulted. He became angry. And his anger of God, when God did not like his so-called good idea, led him to hate his brother, his good brother, Abel, and kill him. Oftentimes our anger with God at his rejection of our goodness and our good ideas cause us really to want to get others out of our way, others that are better than us. Cain wanted to be better than Abel, the roots of love of self, his own pride and conceit, his self-justifying spirit bore the fruit of murder. In the story of Joshua and Jericho, or even of Gideon and the Midianites, what God told them to do defied any human reason. Here's how you're going to take Jericho in military conquest. You're not going to set up siege towers. You're not going to batter down the walls. You're not going to sharpen up your swords and, and kick in the door. No, what you're going to do is you're going to walk around Jericho seven times and you're not going to say a word. What kind of idea is this? Certainly not a good one. That's not how you take a city whose walls are so wide you could have a chariot race on top of them. This was God's plan. Not a good idea. There were many there, I'm sure, who naysayed against this idea. Remember Gideon and the Midianites. You're going to fight hundreds of thousands of Midianites, Gideon. How are you going to do it? You have 30,000 men. You have too many men. They have 200,000 and you have 30,000 and this is too many. Is this a good idea to pare it down even smaller? No. No, that's not a good idea. That's a God idea. Everybody say it's a God idea. You see, the good idea would be, no, we need more than 30. We need 50. We need to remuster. We need to get more. We need to get bigger chariots and, and horses. That's what we need to do. But God said, no, your problem isn't that you don't have enough. Your problem is that you have too many. The good way is always better. The God way is always better than the good way. And now we come to the story of King Saul, the Amalekites, and King Agag. You see, the same thing happens here. Saul gets a good idea. Everybody say, Saul had a good idea. Remember, people of God, we might have good ideas on how things ought to be uh, done, but God always has better ideas than we do. When God's kindness to us leads us, uh, our dark hearts to believe that somehow we are wise and good, so much so that we are more wise and good than God, something's gone terribly wrong. If you remember, he told them, I'm going to lead you into the land that flows with milk and honey. And when you get there and you see the houses that you didn't build and the vineyards that, that are there that you didn't plant, you're going to forget me. Why? Because they're going to think they planted them and they're going to remember that they built them. And it's not true at all. In the verses just following our text from 1 John chapter 1, John the Beloved said it best under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he took the time to divide up what plagues us, Brother Matt, deeply. 
He says this. He, play, he, he breaks it out into three little categories. How many of you understand we're not to love the world? Is this, is this a foreign message here at the Foothills Assembly? Not to love the world, right? Now, none here would dare defy the truth of the words of God, right? And I hope it's okay uh, if we look at it. Is it okay to love the world in your family? Williners, are you guys, is it okay if you love the world? You encourage your kids to love the world, right? No, nobody, right? Anybody, anybody else? Love the world. Love all that stuff. How many of you battled with your kids? Like, you can't love your new bouncy ball more than your little brother. Right? Any of you had this talk with your kids? But it's what we do. We love the things that are in the world. And we love the world. Do we live our lives looking and loving this world and the things in it more than we love one another? I surely hope not. But what I know and what you should know is that we do. Maybe it's not always in the way you might be thinking. So let the words of God inspired by John lead us here to see our pet sin. Love not the world, it says in 1 John 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love, the Father, is not in him. And if I wanted to get you all revved up today, I could pound the pulpit and I could talk about how evil the world is. And I could talk about how bad it is and how we should run to righteousness but away from evil. And you guys would be like, whoa! You guys probably start saying amen. We hate Hollywood. And we hate all the devil's enticements upon us. You'd be like, oh, praise God, we hate it all. Some of you would. You'd turn straight into Pentecostals right here. (laughs) And John leans back like a good Pentecostal. And he says, for all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh. I can almost hear him hanging those S's out. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes I'm doing this for you brother you asked me to do it today I did it I just got it out all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life it's not of the father but of the world and the world pass away and the lust thereof but he that doeth the will of God shall abide forever now we almost listened to this and missed the whole point because we got so tangled up in the lust of the eyes And the lust of the flesh. And then I said real quickly, in the pride of life. When we think of the world, we might think of something like the great allegorical scene from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Vanity fair, gleaming and glowing with all the shiny temptations. This thing that we want, our cravings toward them draws us there. We see this thing and the lust of the eye leads us. We smell the savory smoke like that came out of the cooker over there at the Clark's house and it's delicacies rising up and reaching inside of us and pulling us toward them. Kind of, can you see it? That's what sin does. Lust of the eye. The lust of the flesh. Here we see the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh very clearly and we know to turn our heads and even to hold our noses if need be. We won't be enticed into destruction, we say. I remember taking my children to the uh, Easton Outdoor Mall built by billionaire Les Wexner and it's brick streets and it's uh, lamp posts, you know, that look like gas lights and, and the beautiful things there, the fountains. And I remember walking around and telling my children, let me explain to you what is going on here. I said, what they're trying to do is they're trying to destroy your contentment. You walk into the place feeling pretty good and before you know it, you're looking down at your clothes and you're going, maybe I need a new sweater. 
there's a stain on my jacket and my shoes don't look like the ones there in Johnson and Murphy. Ooh. And I remember my kids, I, I said, now, you understand your mother can find these same $300 sweaters at the thrift store for $3. But these people are all coming in. My kids, I remember them little, they go, we will not be enticed. <laughs> Our contentment will not be destroyed today, Dad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were on guard. Lust of the eye and lust of the flesh be damned, they said. They'll not conquer us. The problem is that this only covers two out of three of the temptations that John mentioned. We like to forget about the third one. What's behind door number three, Johnny? We forget one of the most obvious things in the world. We forget that we, everybody say we. We We are in the world. All that is in the world. Who's in the world? The Bible doesn't say we're not in it. It says we are in it. We're not of it, but we're in it. We are in the world. We forget that behind door number three is the king of all of our difficulties. We forget the pride of life. We are seldom reticent to warn others to protect themselves from the, 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 the sins brought on by the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. But we take little precaution against the pride of life. In fact, last Sunday at my church, I was, I mentioned this in my sermon and I held up a little, like a, I was a pretend little puppy. And I said, what we do to the pride of life is we pet it and we stroke it and we love it and we put a collar on it and we name it. Ooh, I like it. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh. Of course we protect ourselves, but the pride of life, it is the pet sin of Christian people. Denying yourself something that you want is one thing. Offering up the pride of life as a burnt offering is yet another. Dying to temptation is something we have good practice at, but dying to self is nearly impossible. A man can pluck out his own eye if it's constantly leading him to temptation. He can even cut off his hand if it is drawing him into the lust of the flesh. But what is hard for a man to do and what he can do is reach into his own heart and pull it out and throw it out and say, God, this is for you. The pride of life is the king of all our sins. The Lord of our lasciviousness and license. A legion of inner rebellion stands against us, but it too must kneel to Christ. Amen? Amen. God is leading us today to kill the king. The pride of life is what was at the center of Saul's most destructive sin. The one that killed his kingdom and ultimately himself. His valiant son, Jonathan, and most of his descendants. Once he saw what it was doing to him and he had the opportunity to repent. Instead of driving a dagger deep into the heart of the pride of life, he sought to save it. He gathered it up in his arms and he held it close to him and he began to pet it. But we know what Jesus said. He that seeks to save his life shall. I said that yesterday. I say it almost every time I stand in the pulpit. One day you guys may think I've gone senile. Does Pastor Mark have another message? And like John said when they asked him. Do you have another message other than love? Your brothers and sisters love, love, love. And he goes no. He goes I could preach another one. But you haven't gotten this one yet. 
And what Saul did when he was confronted with his sin is to save it. I'm so glad we heard it, 1 Samuel 15, in its entirety, read for us. I don't know if you were listening, but I was hearing such a sad story. But it's our, it's our sad story, TJ. Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people. Now therefore hearken to the voice of the Lord. Who made him king? God made him king. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how they laid in wait for him in the way, and when he came up from Egypt, now go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have, spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Nothing ambiguous about this. Saul gathered the people together and he numbered them in Telium. 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul set this whole thing he was going to do for God off wrong from the start. What did he do? He numbered Israel. Remember what happened when David numbered Israel? Saul did what men do who think that they, what they do for God, they do from their own strength. He numbered them. His good son Jonathan in the chapter before had wrought a mighty victory against the Philistines at Michmash the opposite way. Here he goes digging his way down through a tunnel coming up in the, the Philistines garrison all by himself and saying, come on you Philistines, I'm ready to fight you. Did he not? His armor bearer did not want to go with him that day and he looked at his armor bearer and he said, armor bearer. Do you think it's harder for God to save by few or by many? Do you think it really matters if there's anybody with us today? And Jonathan, the brave son, the son of faith, had showed his father what serving God should be about. He would have made a good king. But Saul numbered Israel. Verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek. He laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you. He he goes and he goes into battle. Saul smote the Amalekites in verse 7 from Havilah till thou comest to Shur over against Egypt. In verse 8, and he took Agag. Everybody say, he took Agag. Agag. Agag the king. I really believe that God has given us this story with Agag the king. So that we can see the king of our sins before us today. The king of pride and of the pride of life. He took King Agag of the Amalekites and he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. You see, he almost did what God commanded Terry. He almost did it. Almost doesn't count when it comes to obedience to the Lord, does it? Because he had a better idea. One that would give God even more honor. In fact, not only would it give God more honor, he liked the ceremony. It would give himself. He built a big altar for himself. And he was going to offer. And not only was he going to be king of Israel, but he was going to be priest of Israel too. Samuel wasn't even there. Oh, I'm going to, oh, this is going to be good. You see, being king wasn't enough for Saul. He wanted to be the priest too. 
Saul said to the people, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best sheep and oxen and the fatlings and lambs. All that was good. If you read this story, you'll hear this word good over and over. And the good animals, all that was good, 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 good. Because it's where we fall. It's our trap, Patrick. We fall for the good. And God says, that's our goal isn't that. It's to follow him. And Samuel comes in verse 10, then came the word of the Lord to Samuel saying, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. He is turned back from following me. He have, he have not performed my commandments and it grieved Samuel and he cried to the Lord all night. He wasn't following evil as we will see. Saul didn't refuse to fight and kill the Amalekites. He didn't even plan to let any of the animals live. Right? Weren't they all going to die anyway? I mean, in a sense, he was really, really hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, technically. How many people find that we equivocate, we justify our sins? We, we, technically, we really have, I mean, we're going to kill them later. What's the big fuss? He was going to do something more beautiful. He was going to make a big sacrifice to God. It was a good plan, he thought to himself. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place. And he's gone about and passed on and gone to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Isn't this a greeting? His greeting is that, hey, I'm good. I'm righteous. I follow God. Look at the good that I've done. Look at me. When we follow the good way, we often think we've obeyed God's command and we feel justified. Samuel said, what, what means the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, oh, well, they have brought them from the Amalekites and the, the, the people spared them. The best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord thy God. The rest we have utterly destroyed. Now, if you don't study language very much, you miss the fact that he said they did the bad things and they did the wrong things, but we did, right? <laughs> they did this and they did that, but we utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Once again, it's what the pride of life does. It blames others. It continues to self-justify and they saved them. They wanted to sacrifice them, but we destroyed them. Then Samuel said to Saul, stay and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, say on. And Samuel said, when thou was little in thine own sight. And I'm telling you, don't miss this line in this story. He's pointing out, you know, there was a day when you were a nobody. You were just a guy in a tribe among the thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of Israel. That's when you were little in your own sight. You guys remember this? He gets anointed king and when they go to do it, he hides. He hides and gets lost in the stuff. They're like, we want to anoint him king, but where is he? And he was hiding. He knew that this was bigger than him. When thou was little in thine own sight, was thou not made head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed thee king over Israel. God calls out sin for what it is, the pride of life, by reminding Saul that there was a time when Saul understood better who he was. 
He was little in his own sight even then, but now he's not so little in his sight. Now he's King Saul. Often when God begins to use us to understand how little we are, how weak we are, but as soon as Philistines start falling at the left and the right, as soon as the Red Sea parts, when we raise our little stick, we forget who we are and we begin to believe that somehow we're big, that somehow we have power that we don't have. I use the example at our church. I let little Liam help me carry a refrigerator one time. And he's over there, Daddy, he's got it. And of course, you know how, how much Liam did. He was carrying that refrigerator, wasn't he, guys? That's us. We think we're carrying the refrigerator because our daddy's got it. The Lord sent me on a journey and said, Go utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites. Fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore, did thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but you flew upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. Even after God makes Saul's sin clear, he still seeks to justify it, blaming others, lying about his role in it. The pride of life is not content enough to do wrong and to get away with it. We will work to make even our evil deeds appear to be good if we can. It's one clear way to know if you're dealing with with the pride of life. Listen to Saul's words in verse 20 of 1 Samuel 15. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord sent me. And I have brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the cheap things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord in Gilgal. Interesting enough, if you notice this here, he even mentions Agag and passes right by. Like he's not even there. He talks about the animals, right? And he sees how wrong that was. He's like, I did right. I brought Agag right here, you know. Agag was the sin that was the sin that was the worst sin that he was doing. And he doesn't even know it's sin. Look, look, look what I've done. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. Here's Agag. What would the voice of the Lord have him had done to Agag? Killed him. But you see, Mandy... Agag was a king like Saul. You follow me here? See, with God, there's no respect of persons. You can be an elder. You can be a president. You can be a deacon. You can be a doctor. You can be somebody, right? But that really don't matter. Well, you know, my, he's a doctor, you know, I'm giving to cut him some slack, you know. And what, what Saul was doing is he was cutting Agag some slack. Who was he really cutting slack? Himself. It was a picture of him. I mean, why be so hard on the guy? He, he's just the king. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken unto God is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry, but thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and hast rejected thee from being king. Now, hearing these words of God should sober us greatly today and cause us to draw our swords, amen? To kill the king of our own sinfulness, the pride of life. If it wasn't God speaking to Saul here in this verse, you might be tempted to go, I really think Samuel is just kind of overstating the case here. You might say, really, I was going to kill the animals later instead of like right now. I mean, that means I'm some kind of idolater or 
Just because I kept one guy alive, you're accusing me of witchcraft? I, I can just hear this. In fact, I've been in the counseling office and I've been on the phone with people just like this. I mean, what's the big deal? I didn't do anything. The pride of life cries out, not so. I didn't do anything. God, in fact, God, you're not even right about what you said about what I've done. All I've done is something good. Sadly, even in Saul's eventual confession, we do not hear the dying of a man to self. We still hear the pride of life negotiating. In contrast, if you, if you read Psalm 51, you read a man who is done negotiating. He says, oh God, break my bones. Lord, he didn't say preserve my kingdom. He said, oh, take not what from me? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He didn't say restore respect and honor. He said, restore the joy of my salvation. That's what he wanted. But what man wants is his honor and his kingdom and his post and his position and his respect among the people. And he knew that this man was eat up with the pride of life. And that he did not love God as much as he loved himself. In these next few verses, watch the pride of life alive and well, taking complete charge of Saul. Because you see, that's what sin does. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. The pride of life wants all of you and will not be satisfied until it destroys you. Saul said to Samuel, he's now confessing. He's, he's gotten no quarter for his sin and he's confessing. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and, and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Even in his repentance, he's making an excuse. I sinned, but I was afraid and the people made me do it. I did this thing, but my wife wasn't doing what she was supposed to do. And, and I did this thing, but my dad didn't treat me right. And yes, I did this thing, but, but my leaders didn't treat me the way I thought they should. Now therefore, I pray thee, he's letting Samuel know what's the right thing to do now. I'm going to tell you what I did, but your job now is to forgive me. When people let you know that's what your next move is, they haven't quite understood repentance and forgiveness. Just so you know, it's now you can forgive me. This is pride of life on display in an 80-foot statue standing in our church today for your edification. Pardon my sin, turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Do you really think the Lord's worship was really what he wanted? He wanted to be seen standing up there. He wanted to be like the Pharisees who loved greetings in the marketplace, who loved to wear the robes, who loved to be important. I'm telling you, people that love that should never be here. People that want to be a leader because they like the honor of it should never lead. If you think you're worthy of honor and respect, you are automatically disqualified from leading in the kingdom of God. For he that shall make himself first shall be what? Last. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold on his mantle. The pride of life is lunging toward the prophet of God and he rips his coat. Can you see the desperation in the pride of life? If I can just stop. No, 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 don't walk away from me. They're going to see you walk away from me. It's the pride of life. It's so ugly. 
It was a dramatic scene of desperation. Saul wanted to figure out a way to save face. He was not concerned with his sin as much as how it made him look. Samuel said to him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than you. Do you see see what Samuel's doing? You see, this is where Samuel pulls out his sword. Not in the next verse. It's in this one. I'm going to give the kingdom to someone who is better than you. You see, this is what was at the heart of Saul. I'm good enough. I'm better. And if you read what happens next for the next years, why does he chase David around nonstop? David's not trying to hurt him. He's not trying to do anything. He knew what he did was wrong and God had taken it from him. But that wasn't enough. He's, the pride of life continues for years on into the future here trying to save his kingdom which could not be saved. This is so ugly here. The strength of Israel will not lie or repent, Samuel says, for he is not a man that he should repent. And then he said, oh, I have sinned. Next verse, honor me now. I pray, do it before the elders and before Israel. Can you see it? Isn't this ugly? It's us, though. Turn again and worship with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. Not the Lord my God. The Lord thy God. Because we know who his king was. Right? His king was Saul. This is the very worst moment of Saul's life, the very defining moment of who he was. He cared so much for honor before the elders and before the people of Israel and so little for God. That's why, that's why Esau didn't get the birthright. Jacob said, I'll cheat, I'll deceive, I'll do whatever I got to do, but it's so valuable. I want it. That's why God made him Israel. He was willing to do anything. Sammy knew after what had just happened that there was no hope for Saul. He understood that Saul had kept Agag alive, but he was a king. After all, that's what Saul was. Keeping him alive was a symbol of who Saul was, once little in his own sight. Now he was somebody. He was king. And to make the point of how ugly this was, the value... The post God gives you more than the God who gives it. Samuel does something that we should etch on our souls today. Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him delicately. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. I think God put this in scripture to shock us. Here you have the sweet son of Hannah and Elkanah, the Nazarite from his birth that wouldn't even touch something dead. The boy who wasn't sure if it was God and said, oh, whatever you want me to do, who served the Lord without any recorded blemish of his service to God. He was faithful all the days of his life. He wasn't like David, even the bloody man. And here we have sweet, sweet Samuel, mama's boy. Bring me Agag. And he doesn't just kill him. He cuts him in pieces. Now, folks, I don't know if you've ever killed anything, but could you imagine killing it and with a sword, cutting it 
in pieces to where the blood is flying and the body parts are separating and the spatter. Can you imagine this scene? Because it's what happens. Thy sword hath made women childless, and so shall thy mother be childless among women. Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal, which is what you always had to do to a sacrifice. You had to cut it in pieces. And what Samuel was doing is he was saying, this is what we do to the pride of life. We kill it. This is how we kill the king. And we know that this was what happened because Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to the house and Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. You see, because the day that Saul's king of pride died was the day he died. He lived in that pride. And I know I've been preaching for a little while, but I still have a little more to go. Can we go just a little bit? I know this is not a happy message, but I'm telling you, if you listen to it, you'll have happy days. Because he that loses his sake for mine, Jesus said, will find a good life. Our text in this message, I'm telling you, it's so amazing to me. I go to look to find, you know, like, God, you're speaking to me, and i got to read it, and I'm reading it again, and I missed something my whole life, Matt, until I looked at this after God had spoken to me, and I look at it, I'm like, it's right there in my face. It's been looking me right straight in the face. Back to our text. This is the message we heard of him declare that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. Who's light? God is light. Are you light? Now, you're light in that you reflect His glorious light. But are you the source of it all? Are you the son of righteousness? No, you're not. But you, God has made us children of light. We are the reflection of His glory. In Him is no darkness at all. And He says these things that I have just not connected like I'm going to connect them for you right now. If we say that we have no... If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, and we have fellowship one with another, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so he's going to talk about sin. Now we know about the sins of the egregious, nasty, horrible, commandment-violating sins, but there are other sins too besides those He starts off and he said, if we say we have no sin. I didn't realize that this is one of the sins. If we say that we have no sin, that's the pride of life. He said, if we say that we have no sin. In fact, he spends more time on this part of the sin than he does the other. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. He's saying living an ungodly life is one thing and living a self-righteous, self-justifying, self-holy life is sin. These are both sins. We can get caught up in trying to be good and righteous and holy and at least to believe that that is that source of that comes from us. We can believe that that when we hold out our hand, you know, that this great thing happens and and when we live in such a righteous way, we can come in the pulpit and thunder because of our righteousness and God hates all of that. 
God hates our sins that are obvious and he hates our pride. And I'm going to end today with the most powerful diatribe against this sin of pride that is ever written in the scripture other than the story of King Agag. And it is from Paul. And you've already heard it once, but I'm going to lay it out for you a little bit more as we close. Philippians chapter 3 is literally, I can see, I can see Paul with a sword like Samuel as he is writing these words. He says, we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and we rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no, everybody say no. no. We have no confidence in the flesh, not a little, not some, but we have none. none. And just in case you thought he sort of kind of meant it and he was just sort of encouraging us to trust in God, he lays out what is at the very heart of the pride of life. We have no confidence in the flesh. He said, I might have confidence in the flesh. If any man thinks he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. So Paul's like, remember he said he's the chief of sinners, right? He's the chief of sinners, and he knew this sin, this king, this pride of life. He knew it just as well as anybody. And he lays it out. Let me tell you who I am, people. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember the first kings of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. I think it's very appropriate that it's right here. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law... A Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. My education, my family, my behavior, everything that I am is better than most people. I'm more righteous. I'm more educated. I am better situated in family name. I'm part of a better group than any of you. What is he doing? He's cutting in pieces the king of pride of life. And he's saying it doesn't matter to me. It's not important to me. It doesn't matter what somebody says about me. Oh, he's a doctor. Oh, he's an elder. Oh, he's a this or a that. May it be to us what it was to the apostle. He said, I count all of that but dumb. But is it what we count it today? Do we stand up with pride and we lift up and we go, well, look what I've done. Look how long I've done it. Look how well I've done it. Look what letters are by my name. Folks, that's, that's ugly. You see, in the kingdom of God, we talked about this here yesterday. There's an order in the kingdom of God. It's everyone else and then, and then me. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Not only were, are they not important, they actually count against me. Because the pride of life, Ruth, it makes it difficult for us when we have something to be proud about. That's why the rich man can't enter into the kingdom. It's, it's hard. Why? Because he's somebody. Is he going to stoop to go through that gate? Is he going to let anyone talk down to him? Is he going to let anyone walk by and not give him his due respect? I'm telling you, you want an ugly church. Let this live in you. My mother-in-law said it, and I've said it, I'll say it over and over, it's so beautiful. She goes, you know you are actually a servant when you get treated like one. 
and it doesn't bother you. Who do they think they are? What do they think? I'm supposed to be the one to do this? They think, tell me, right? That's pride. It's all puffed up. He said, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Why? That I may win Christ. You see, when you live in your life, Christ doesn't. Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Oh, yet not I, but it's Christ that liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul understood that it were not for the grace of God, he would be burning in an eternal flames of hell. That it was only by God's grace that he was saved, not by works of righteousness which he had done. I do count them but dung that I may win Christ and not be found in him. And I just, he lays, I don't want to be found in him having my own righteousness. That's just obeying all the rules. That's getting it all right. That's being really, really good. Oh, I don't want to come to Christ like that. I want to be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. What, what, what does he want? He said, that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith. Because I don't want to know good. And I don't want to know evil. He said that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable unto his death. He died. He was hated. He was despised. He was rejected. And so why does it bother me when I am despised? And when I am rejected? And when I am in sorrow and nobody notices? Oh, why me? Why are we better than him? He sweat as it were great drops of blood in agony. Fighting against the will of his human flesh that said, I don't want to go. Are we better than that? Feeling the pain and the loneliness of abandonment of every friend that he had, that he had loved and given everything to. Are you better than that? But we get insulted and we get hurt and we hold bitterness and hatred in our hearts against those that have been forgiven by Christ. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 4? Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake. You can't be tender-hearted when the pride of life lives at your house. I, may, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Folks, this is a goal. Killing the king is a goal of your life you need to set every day. That's what Paul said. I, he said, I die. How often? Once in a while? I die. I die daily. Not as though I had attained already, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. I could preach all day. I absolutely am eat up with this message today. How many of us want to see the king of pride killed in our lives? 
How many of us want to say, all right, am I treating my brothers and sisters like, like I ought to treat them? Am I getting hurt? Am I getting upset? Am I being offended because they're not giving me my due? Let's kill it today and say, you know what? I'm not doing anything. I remember one day someone was worried about someone stealing from me. I had this jar of money out and I said, you know, they can't steal from me. I had this jar of money. People used to buy things at this stand out by my house and they'd buy honey from my bees and things that I had out there, firewood. And someone goes, you better watch that. They're going to steal it. I go, buddy, they can't steal from me. I said, they can have anything they want. They can, if they need it, if they're hungry, they can just open that jar and take whatever they want out of there. It doesn't bother me. Folks, when you understand that what you have comes from God, people can't steal from you. And when you understand that you're nothing but a worm and you're nothing, nothing unless God exalts you, you see, God resists the proud. But what does he do to the humble? He does exalt them. And when the humble are exalted before the Lord, they're not standing there lifting their head up higher. They're just wondering why they're there. And some of you that think I ought to be exalted, you probably never will be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that we could kill the king together. This king with a little K that exalts itself above the king with a capital K. Lord, please help us, Lord. Lord, help us to die daily. Help us to understand who we are. Help us to gaze into the heavens and see your glory and see what we are. And never be lifted up in pride and never... Let the pride of life rule us, Lord. Lord, let this be our rule to esteem each other better than ourselves, to walk in the lowliness of mind that you walked in, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon yourself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and found in fashion as a man. You humbled yourself. You became obedient, not only to death, but even the death of the cross. And, oh, Lord, you've been exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, may you rule as king in our lives and may self be killed. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.